and welcome to the first edition of the Nutritionist Webinar 2016. Excuse me, it's the March edition of the Nutritionist Webinar 2016. I'm Marianne Fezenden from Agricultural Modeling and Training Systems, and I serve as your American host. The purpose of these webinars is to provide access to technical seminars on a range of topics delivered by internationally recognized speakers. The series is a unique three-language presentation held in English, Portuguese, and Spanish. Noted ruminant nutritionists will present in English, hosted by AMTS in the United States, while Marcelo Hens Ramos from 3R Lab simultaneously translates into Portuguese for Brazil and Paula Torillo translates into Spanish for Argentina. There will be a post-presentation question and answer period during which listeners can submit questions through me or Marcelo and Paula. A complete recording of archived webinars will be available on the 3R and AMTS websites. We are very pleased and honored to have representatives from three of the major Forge Labs here with us on our Forge Lab Forum. The first speaker will be Dave Taysom of Dairyland Laboratories. Dave is a graduate of, it is a 1984 graduate of NDSU with a BS in Animal Science. He served as market support manager for Pfizer and joined Dairyland Laboratories as a sales rep in 1986. He's now the general manager. Dairyland Laboratories is a family-owned independent laboratory providing extensive analysis of feed, forage, soil, and water. During his 29 years at Dairyland, Dave has served on numerous boards related to forage analysis and forage quality. This includes the Midwest Forage Council, National Forage Testing Association, NIRS Consortium, as well as being a stakeholder for the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center. We're going to have Dave speak first. Hi, Dave. Are you ready? I am. Good afternoon. Right. Can you hear me okay? Well, thank you very much. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, it is truly a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. I would like to take uh, this opportunity to thank the organizers at AMTS for this opportunity. Uh, it's fun to be on a panel here with the other laboratories and look forward to some good information. Going to forego with the introductions of Dairyland Laboratories um, and kind of skip to the, the main reason for why we're here today. I chose the topic of low lignin alfalfa as what I chose to present today. I guess we chose this topic for a variety of reasons. I think that it has implications for the industry and I think it has a huge opportunity that uh, is presented to the industry as well as it's going to provide opportunities and challenges for laboratories to be able to properly identify the improvements of this type of product. I have these question marks up here because um, I'm wondering if the term low lignin is really the most appropriate term. Uh, when, we, when we say low, we're assuming that there's little to nothing when we use that term. Um, but with low lignin alfalfa, um, there is still lignin present. You know, you take a look at an alfalfa sample, somewhere seven, eight, nine, or ten percent lignin, and it's going to be reduced. Uh, compare that to like a BMR or some other forage types that are dealing with two, three, or four percent lignin. I'm just not sure low is the right term. It's been talked about uh, using reduced lignin, and I think that's an appropriate term uh, because it is uh, a product that has re lignin that has been reduced by a couple of uh, conventional means. 
Another term that could be more appropriate would be highly digestible alfalfa. I guess I'm not here to tell the industry what to do, uh, but I think our terms are important and would advocate that we try to find a term that appropriately fits the product that we're talking about. So with that, I just have one slide regarding lignin. Uh, it is the most abundant uh, biopolymer on earth and it interacts uh, with other cell wall polymers, cellulose, hemicellulose, and uh, there is uh, three or four presentations that could go into much more the chemistry behind it and the features of the low lignin. I chose to not go through that today and be a little bit more on the applied side, but it is one of the most useful feedstocks that we have for plastic, carbon, fuels, chemicals, I think it's important to review why we actually need lignin, okay? Number one, it does provide strength to the plants. It is also allows the plant's um, system to transport water, and that's important when we have the uptake of water to release other nutrients as well. It actually sequesters atmospheric carbon into the vegetation, and we use that extensively. On the other hand, it's one of the more slowly decomposing components of dead vegetation, and it's a major fraction of organic matter. Uh, the organic clients and uh, things of that nature have often used plow down nitrogen or plow down corn to improve the soil organic matter, and much of that is due to the lignin being very slowly decomposed. So for right now, there's three different companies that are out marketing and advocating uh, a reduced lignin alfalfa varieties. And there are a couple of distinctions on how these companies arrived at the reduced lignin. The first two companies, Pioneer and Alpharex, uh, have a reduction in lignin content of their varieties. And this was done by conventional breeding and selecting processes. By that, they go in and, and select based on the lignin content or other parameters of yield, and over a period of years have selected varieties that have a lower reduction of lignin in them. Uh, a variety that's marketed by Forage Genetics is a combination of the Noble Foundation and the Forage Research Center and some other companies joined together and through biotechnical techniques actually altered the lignin content, um, call it a knockout gene or a down-regulated gene, I'm not sure the proper term. Um, but they also were able to reduce the lignin content of their forages through a different means. And because of that process, uh, the reduction in their lignin is anywhere between 10 to 15% reduction. So to review some of the basics here, uh, this is the yield curve of alfalfa. And as most of us know, um, the longer we would let our alfalfa or our grasses or combination grow, uh, the more potential we have for yield. And it's always the question of what do I want uh, better yield or do I want better forage quality? And consequently, we also know that as we let alfalfa grow or mature, get out past the bud stage, that this decline in forage quality can decline very rapidly and sometimes um, due to the mercies of the weather, we just don't have a lot of uh, control over when we can actually harvest that forage. And so we're always stuck in this area of do I harvest now? Do I wait a couple of days? Is it going to rain? Uh, what are my options? One of the really neat benefits of the low lignin alfalfa, though, uh, in, in my humble opinion, is that it provides us more flexibility. By that, um, you can see here through this slide, um, if we want to obtain 
higher yields and maintain the same amount of quality, we have a wider window with here with which we can theoretically harvest our forages. Consequently, if we chose to um, want to retain, improve um, the yield or you know, keep the same quality, those options are both presented with this low lignin or reduced lignin alfalfa quality. So it improves the ability, uh, gives us some more management options to with which we can deal. How does the lignin or the digestibility change in these forages? Well, primarily you're going to have less lignin uh, or a different type of lignin that is in the stem. This is genetic and that's what the plant breeders have selected for or have produced for. We also need to appreciate that there's an environmental effect when it comes to lignin and digestibility. We understand that cloudy days, less sunlight reduces the lignin content. We've known for years, especially with alfalfa varieties, that cooler temperatures also reduce the lignin content. Uh, in addition, uh, we get more leaves. It's a more favorable leaf growth environment. We happen to have less leaf disease, and it also reduces the loss when we harvest the leaves as well. One of the other potential benefits that we know, this was a study done by Dr. Dan Undersander at the University of Wisconsin here in Arlington. And what we know in intensive cut systems that when you increase the number of cuts through the second and third year, you actually have a yield reduction. So for example, in this one here, in the second year of a three cut system versus the second year of a four cut system, there was about a 17% reduction in the yield, as well as following through in the third year of the same study, um, when you selected a three-cut system versus a four-cut system, you had almost a 25% reduction. So one of the benefits of the low or the reduced lignin alfalfa would maybe enable us to uh, go back to a three-cut system or maybe not have to cut as often and then also have the benefits of an improved yield as well. The value of reduced lignin, I think, hope most people in our industry understand that, but it really improves the forage quality. We're hoping that it gives us a wider harvest window. really depends on where you're located, if you're under irrigation, or if you're like we are here in the Midwest or the Northeast, where we're at the mercy of the weather constantly. Uh, we could harvest later hopefully getting more tons per cutting and maybe make full use of our growing season. Uh, a slide that I'll show you here in a few minutes talks about still have a reduction of lignin, even harvesting eight to 10 days later. Um, the next two slides were shared with me from the forage genetics teams. It's the product that was arrived at through the biotechnic means of reducing the lignin. And what this experiment or what this slide here shows are the yield, the acid detergent checks. I'm sorry, I should have asked it. Hope you can see my pointer. But anyway, the acid detergent lignin checks and the percentage of RMQ. These are the experimental hybrids or experimental varieties, I should say, that were planted versus the controls. And what this shows is in 2014 that the yield of these experimental hybrid was 96% of the control uh, that was on there. Okay, um, again, the yield in these two years of the ex elite uh, experimentals versus the control, 
Depending upon the year, they yielded as well, uh, and in certain instances, slightly less. When they went in and measured the acid detergent lignin as a percentage of the checks, depending upon the year, uh, there was anywhere from a 20% to 21 to a low of maybe 18% reduction in the lignin compared to the checks that we have here. Consequently, they also measured the RFQ. RFQ is a relative forage quality. Here in the States, it's a measure uh, taking into account not only the amount of protein and NDF and energy of the sample, but also takes into account the NDF digestibility. And these elite experimentals, the RFQ was about 13 to 17%, in some instances, 20 to 24% above what the controls have here. So it's what you expect, uh, hopefully, when you're going to reduce the lignin, that your forage quality and more specifically the forage digestibility uh, can increase at the same This here is also from that same trial. It kind of illustrates what I talked about a little bit earlier, comparing the lignin content in a three versus a four cut system. In this field trial here, the lignin content of the harvester varieties harvested at 35 days is going to be slightly less than the variety harvested at 28 days. This is the opportunity that allows us to uh, spread out our harvest window and maybe go to a three-cut versus a four-cut system without sacrificing quality. It also enables us, though, to get in there and harvest if you choose to harvest every 28 days to have higher quality or higher digestible forage uh, at the same time. There is not a lot of data out there as far as actually published data. Uh, these are new products coming to the market, and I would fully expect to see much more published data coming to the industry in the next couple of years. I was able to dig out two studies that are published in the literature. This is a study here that was conducted by Dr. David Mertens at the Forage Research Center, where they went in and fed lambs uh, at libidum to measure the in vivo digestibility. It was 100% alfalfa. Here what we have is the inactive is the gene that was um, by biotechnical means inactivated in the lignin content versus its control. So they have relatively the same amount of NDF between the low lignin and the control. The lignin content was slightly reduced. Uh, when they measured the NDF digestibility um, in the animal, you can see there was a statistically significant difference uh, between the control as well as the dry matter disappearance. The second group of samples uh, trial here, uh, similar reduction in lignin content, um, while a numerical difference existed in the NDF digestibility and the dry matter disappearance, um, it was not statistically significant at that level. There's only one uh, lactating cow trial oops, uh, that I'm aware of. Did that get missed in here? Dave, that might have been, you had a slide that was hidden. That might be the one. Do you want me to try to bring it in? Uh, is it feasible without too much time? Yeah, it's the one lactation study that was Yeah, the, you keep talking and I'll bring it in as I'll have to create a different PowerPoint. I'll bring it in on a separate tab and then you'll be able to go to it. Okay? Oh, okay. Well, while she's doing that, there is another um, study that was conducted uh, by Dr. Weekly with the 4-H Genetics Group where they went in and um, fed two different diets 
um, of highly digestible or low lignin alfalfa uh, versus the, the control, just like we have here with these um, diets uh, on the lambs. Uh, but anyway, in the in the one in the study that was presented, and if the slides come up a little bit later, that's fine. Um, in the one study, it did show a statistically difference in NDF digestibility as well as milk production. Okay, um, much like this one here, though, in the second study here, there was numerical differences. Uh, there was a statistical difference in the NDF digestibility, uh, but unfortunately in the milk production, uh, there was not a difference in, in that. So how does this relate to the laboratory and how does this relate to clients using laboratory analysis? Uh, when we actually measure lignin in the laboratory, there are three primary methods that are used. Uh, number one, the potassium permanganate method uh, was used years ago. Uh, there's also most labs using sulfuric acid, and in the early 1900s, there was a Claussen method that was developed. I think it's fair to say, at least from a Dairyland perspective, that we use the sulfuric acid method, and I think most of the major labs also use that. The primary reason for the sulfuric acid method is that it was the method recommended in the 2000 Dairy NRC, and lignin is used in the... Um, uh, energy calculations, and they wanted to standardize up on a method, so everybody um, chose the sulfuric acid. It's also fair to say that lignin is one of the more difficult assays when it comes from a laboratory standpoint. And um, if you take understand that you're taking the same type of a methodology that you're measuring ADF and NDF, whose values are in the 20, 30, and 40 percent range and taking that same procedure and measuring lignin, like on a BMR corn salad, this may be between 1% and 3%, and on haze, going to be between 7 and 10%. So your weighing errors uh, kind of become more significant when you're dealing with those low levels. At the same time, if uh, you're trying to develop NIR calibrations based off of that, um, the NIR calibrations... Um, are not as, as quite as good as what we'd expect for, for like protein and NDF. From Dairyland's perspective, we always say that our NIR calibrations of lignin are between adequate and good. I mean, they, they do work. Uh, just appreciate that for things like NDF and protein uh, and undigestible NDF at 240 hours, there is a marketed uh, difference in the accuracy of the calibrations uh, from lignin to those. Dave, um, I yeah. have that presentation, that slide that was missing. It's presentation one tab. The first slide will be blank. Oh. The second one has the data you wanted to talk about. Um, just know that both the um, Paula and Marcello won't have that in their grouping, but they'll be able to perhaps feed it in later as a, a translation in the recording. Okay. okay? Okay. I'm going to switch to that very briefly then. Just go to the next slide. There you go. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow. I'm, I'm going to mute. <laughs> <laughs> this is the study that we were talking about on the lactating cow response with the down-regulated lignin. It was a TMR diet. They were fed 50% uh, haylage, 10% corn silage, and 40% concentrate. And again, uh, the two types of hays that were fed, the inactive is the down-regulated gene versus its control. 
The diet's comprised of 18% protein. The NDF content in this diet was fairly similar. And as you can see here, the NDF digestibility was significantly improved um, due to the low lignin or reduced lignin varieties, as well as the milk production was significantly improved as well. In the next diet, I'm sorry I don't have enough background information. Uh, you can see there was a statistical difference in the NDF digestibility. Um, didn't show up in the actual milk production, uh, but I don't understand why there was such a difference in the NDF content of these as well. So, um, but in that study, it did show uh, what we would expect. If you have lower lignin, you have higher digestibility forages, and that should translate into milk production as well. So with that, I'm going to go back to the presentation that we are on. Okay, back to measuring lignin and how that's going to affect the end users. And uh, my point here is that, you know, for some of these varieties, if they're going to reduce the lignin content by 5%, and we're assuming about 7% lignin content of that alfalfa to begin with, well, you're talking a reduction of 0.35% in the lignin content. And from a wet chemistry standpoint, to be able to pick up that small a difference, you definitely have to make sure you're running more than just singles. You may have to run three or four or five replicates and average those to pick up that type of a difference. With the Alpharex varieties, where they're talking a 7 to 10% reduction, your reduction in actual lignin content is going to be anywhere from 0.5 to 0.7%. Um, again, from a chemistry standpoint, if you run enough reps, you should be able to pick that up. Um, some of the NIR calibrations may be able to do that. I'm not sure they're that sensitive. Uh, but when you get to um, the actually down-regulated lignin varieties, or you're looking anywhere from three-quarters to a 1% reduction, um, then you'll be, be able to see it with your typical lignin analysis. But unfortunately, um, most laboratories are measuring the amount of undigestible NDF at 240 hours. Uh, this is a process that was highly motivated with the Cornell model and um, much improved our ability to determine rates by moving away from the typical concept of measuring lignin and multiplying that by 2.4 to get to the undigestible NDF. Instead, we actually go in and measure the, ND, the UNDF at 240 hours as a replacement for lignin. And this simply here is a histogram of about 12,000 samples, or 120,000, I'm sorry, within Dairyland, of mixed haylage samples. So these would be uh, grass mixes to grass, mostly alfalfa mixes. But you can see here the distribution in the lignin content is going to be anywhere from five and a half, maybe up to 10, maybe on extreme end of 11%. That same data, data set of samples, when you look at the undigestible NDF at 240 hours, has a much broader range in, with the undigestible NDF at 240 hours. It's going to range anywhere from 11 up to 30%. And so from just a pure numerical standpoint, it gives us a much broader range and much better ability to pick up that difference um, through the use of this measurement. I'd also advocate that the NIR calibrations from Dairyland, um, I think it's supported by the other labs as well, 
The NIR calibrations for undestable NDF at 240 hours are significantly better than a lignin calibration. Um, because you're measuring such a long time point, all the interferences are removed, and then those are very strong calibrations by NIR. I see I'm bumping up against the time here. This is the same distribution on corn silage, but for today's topic, it was low lignin alfalfa. With that, I would... Um, Really want to thank people that helped me put this presentation together. Dr. Dan Undersender, a UW Extension Agronomist here in Wisconsin, and Dr. David Leakley with Forage Genetics and uh, the Winfield Company. With that, I would uh, turn it over to you, or I'm not sure yes. if we answer questions now or turn it no, over. No, what we'll do is if everybody, I should have reminded people this at the beginning, but if they'll make sure that they write down questions that may occur to them, during the course of the, the talks, then we'll have all the questions. Our next speaker is Sally Fliss from Dairy One Forage Lab. She was a double major in dairy science and agronomy, attaining her BS at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She stayed at UW-Madison to complete her MS in dairy nutrition, focusing on nitrogen excretion and RUP and RDP. Sally, came east to Minor Institute and the University of Vermont for her PhD in plant and soil science, where her focus was looking at the disposal of CuSO4, copper sulfate, from foot baths into manure storage and the effects that manure as applied to fields and crop growth. She spent seven years working as a certified nutrient management planner in New York and Vermont and started at Dairy One in June of 2014. Sally, welcome. And luckily, Sally is joining me in, in Groton because we're fairly close to her home base when she's here. She often works out of Buffalo. So, Sally, I'm going to pass it over to you. Okay. Thank you, Marianne. Um, thanks for inviting me. We've got uh, some interesting stuff to talk about that we've done at Dairy One in the last year and a half. So, uh, we are actually a, a dairy farmer owned co op, and so we have a board of 16 members. 17 members that uh, helps us make all of our decisions. And one of our board members approached us in the fall of 2014 and had some samples of corn silage harvested by two different choppers, one with a shredlage head and one with a, a more conventional head on it, and wanted to know, they were trying to make a decision on what to buy for their new chopper. And we were interested in looking at measurements we could do on corn silage in the lab that would let us tell you guys a little bit more about corn silage than just the chemical analysis because that chemical analysis on a process versus unprocessed corn silage often looks the same but doesn't always feed the same. So we did a 12-week study. Um, we started in about this time last year and we did some pretrial milk analysis the week before just to get a baseline of the cows. We used two pens. They were all two-plus lactation cows. Um, they got about 10.5 kilos of shredlage or the conventionally processed corn silage, which made up about 38% of the dry matter in the diet. The rest of the diet was exactly the same. They had about 3.5 kilos of halinge and 12.5 kilos of a premixed concentrate and a little less than a half a kilo of dry matter whey. The diets were formulated by the herd nutritionists, Sue Greff and Russ Seville. 
And we did a short little three-week switch at the end, and I should have taken that out because I know I took those slides out about what we saw in that switch. So um, if you're interested in those, we can get you guys the full report um, a little later on. So the two objectives of the study, as I mentioned earlier, were that we were trying to help the farm decide what direction they wanted to go with their new corn processing unit, with their new choppers, and help explore and develop a lab measurement to better characterize the differences in shredlage uh, to conventionally processed corn silage, or just in general, as we talk about the results, the differences in corn silage processing and how we can look at some of those physical characteristics more. So we started uh, with 152 cows in each pen, and the average days in milk uh, was 115 for the pen that received the shredlage and 120 for the pen that received the conventionally processed corn silage. Uh, at the end of the 12 weeks, we had 143 cows in the shredlage pen that were in the pen all 12 weeks of the study, and 136 cows that were in the conventional pen all 12 weeks of the study. We did have some health incidents in both pens, really not enough going on there and without the replication to say that there was any health benefit to these cows of getting one corn silage over the other, um, some mastitis cases and a couple of feet uh, cases. All of them were heel warts except for one, I believe, case in the conventional pen was uh, foot ulcer. Looking at milk production, um, the shredlage pen consistently had more milk uh, produced than the conventional corn silage pen. Uh, I have the weeks three to nine highlighted because when we get to the forage analysis in a couple of slides, weeks three to nine is really when the two corn silage chemically, corn silage is tested the same chemically or closest chemically. Uh, week zero was really only about four days, the end of the week that we first started it. Weeks one and two, there were some differences. And as we got further into the two piles and away from the conventional corn silage that we really wanted to be testing in weeks 10, 11, and 12, the starch and the NDF started to drift apart between the two corn silages. So really we've tried to look the most at weeks three to nine um, for our responses. So we saw anywhere from uh, one to one and a half kilos of a milk production response in uh, the cows. And dry matter intake was really pretty similar. It kind of bounced back and forth between the two different pens, but on average uh, was, was really pretty similar. Uh, so not dry matter intake wouldn't be explaining our difference in milk production. So uh, as I mentioned in the previous slide, looking at the corn silage analysis, we really focused on the weeks three to six for some of our cow responses because, um, so if you look at the NDF in week uh, week one, we had a pretty big difference. We had a four-point difference in NDF in week one. And then as we get out to weeks 10, 11, and 12, we see the starch really starting to come down in that conventional conventionally processed corn silage versus the shredlage crude protein was pretty similar, uh, and NDF digestibility was pretty similar across um, through the project. Looking at milk quality, we tested milk quality at the start just to see if there was much change, and they, there really wasn't a difference. Um, we also tested milk quality again at week six and week 12. We didn't see any difference um, between the two pens for fat, protein, somatic cell, or MUN. 
at either week six or week 12. So really no indications that there's any rumen acidosis problems going on in either pen of cows. We also measured fecal starch at week six and week 12, um, and we saw some really great fecal starch numbers overall, uh, under two or under for both pens of cows. So starch digestibility and the amount of available starch in the, really it's the amount of starch that must, that's got to be limiting that um, conventional pen because both pens are really getting all the starch out of those diets as they, as much starch out of those diets as they really can in order to make milk with. Looking at the, we also looked at the fecal NDF at those weeks because there's been talk, uh, discussion about whether or not there's a difference in the fiber digestibility of the way shredlage pro is processed versus the way a conventional processor works because the shredlage is kind of ripping open that rind a little bit more and we didn't see any difference at all in the fecal NDF numbers um, as an indicator of difference in, in NDF digestibility. Um, so in summary, we saw very similar results to the two UW trials. The biggest difference between our trial and the, one of the differences between the UW trial and our trial is they had a much higher inclusion rate of corn silage in their diets than we did in ours. They were either 45 or 50, where we were only about 38% corn silage in our diet. Um, we had higher milk production response than uh, both of those projects. Uh, we, again, as same as them, saw no difference in milk quality. Um, they had a dry matter intake difference in the first trial. We didn't really see a dry matter intake difference in our project and no difference in starch digestibility in that first project either. We also didn't have any, I didn't put the slides in here, but we didn't observe any sorting. We did Penn State boxes and we also did TMR and uh, refusal sample analysis and chemically and physically there was no sorting going on in the cows. Uh, the Cornell trial did uh, is the one that's different. Uh, they saw no difference in milk production, no difference in their dry matter intake, and no difference in milk quality. Again, they had a little bit higher inclusion rate of corn silage than we did. And our, our project is summarized at the bottom there where we saw no sorting, no difference in milk quality, um, similar dry matter intakes, and a little bit higher milk production response. And again, no fecal starch differences. The other part of this was looking at characterizing the corn silage. And so we already looked a little bit at the chemical analysis showing that there wasn't a, a lot of difference in most of the weeks in that chemical analysis. We also did Penn State shaker um, analysis on it and the corn silage processing score and then added a few things onto that corn silage processing score to try and define these corn silages a little further. Looking at the Penn State uh, shaker box, we saw very similar things to what have been reported with shredlage versus conventionally processed corn silage in the past, where there's a lot more material on that upper uh, screen rather than the middle and the lower screen, which we're assuming is going to give us some better chewing and buffering, even with higher starch availability from higher kernel processing scores. So just to review, the corn silage processing score is looking at the coarse, there's three fractions. The coarse fraction, which is everything that's on that greater than 4.75 millimeter screen. And this is the material that's going to stimulate chewing activity. And starch in these particles is generally going to be poorly digested because it's too large or it's a whole kernel and it's not going to be available to the bugs in the rumen. 
the rate of digestion uh, for this fraction is going to be slow and may escape the ruminants on two particles. The medium fraction is that material between the 4.75 and the 1.18 millimeter screen. And the fine fraction is the material that passes through the 1.18 millimeter screen. It's likely to not contribute at all to chewing activity or physical effectiveness. But the starch in the fine particles is going to ferment rapidly. Um, if there's too much, it may cause problems in low fiber rations. And knowing what's in this fraction can be a useful tool to troubleshoot either uh, low milk production or uh, milk fat problems or rumen acidosis problems. Looking at the two corn silages over the 12 weeks of the study and the corn silage processing score for these two corn silages, um, the shredlage consistently tested uh, as a better corn silage processing score, indicating that there was more kernels open and uh, more starch available from that corn silage than from the conventional. All the samples except for the one sample in week five um, had a above adequate corn silage processing score, so above that 50, which has kind of been indicated as the break, break point for good processing. So looking at our milk production response and the corn silage processing score, we're curious to see if we are doing the best we can do by only looking at corn silage processing score. So the first graph is corn silage processing score versus milk production for all the corn silage samples. There's really not a relationship to be picked out there. So I also looked at milk production response and corn silage processing score. And again, looking at per, uh, response and, and processing score, we didn't really see much going on. So we decided to look a little further into the corn silage processing score. And what we did is we took the coarse, medium, and the fine fraction of the corn silage processing score after it was shaken. The lab kept those separate and then analyzed uh, starch and NDF on those fractions. So we see in the uh, first, one, first slide here, the first chart with the coarse starch that the uh, conventionally processed corn silage always tested with more starch in that coarse fraction, and the shredlage always tested with more starch in that medium and fine fraction of the corn silage processing. So if we look at the percent starch in those fractions versus milk production, we start to get a little bit more of an indication of some relationships going on to milk production. Looking at the course, um, as the it looks like there may be a relationship there, whereas the percent starch in the course fraction uh, increases, milk production decreases, kind of as has been indicated, as was mentioned earlier, that that starch is not very available. If we look at the medium starch, the starch in the medium fraction, we start to see that as the percent starch in that fraction increases, we see uh, potential milk production response. And surprisingly, the percent starch in the fine fraction uh, doesn't appear to have any relationship to milk production. Uh, the second measure we did on this was uh, the NDF, and we see the opposite, where that the shredlage had more NDF in the coarse fraction, and then the conventional had more NDF in the medium and the fine fraction. Again, looking at the relationship to milk production, we see a little less potential for a relationship in the coarse NDF, but again, a potential for a relationship in the medium NDF to milk production, where when we increase NDF in that medium fraction, milk production is decreasing. Again, the fine fraction really had no relationship to milk production. 
So overall, what we found in our project was that it doesn't look like corn silage processing score alone is the best number to be looking at for a measure of cow performance for a corn silage, and that the fine fraction of the corn silage processing score also does not appear to be related to cow performance. However, the percent starch and the percent NDF in that medium fraction looks like there's potential to continue to look at a wider range of corn silage processing scores and develop hopefully be able to develop a relationship to cow performance. So as with all projects, we'd like to look at some more samples and some more production data to continue to build that data set. So where to go next, uh, again, looking at more samples uh, that we have milk production response and diet information to go along with those samples and looking at the, the NDF and the starch in that, in that medium fraction. Um, additionally, possibly looking at following the cows from the original 12-week study to see if there was any benefit um, to having increased performance or detriment to having increased performance during that study on their following lactation. Uh, I'd like to thank the staff at the Allen White Farm. They were a great help getting sampling, making sure the cows stayed in the right place. Uh, Sue and Russ from Cargill for uh, managing the diets for us and the Dairy One lab staff for doing all the extra analysis on these samples as I kept coming up with new ideas and dropping them off for Paul and, and everybody to deal with. Uh, the second thing I've got to cover a few slides on quickly is the percent grass uh, NIR calibration that we have available now. We developed this um, with uh, Dr. Jerry Cherney at Cornell. He it, he created the act on the 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 actual mixed samples, so the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, up to 100%, whether it was percent grass in a sample, and then we ran those on our NIR, and as you can see in the graph, found a really great re, uh, relationship in that um, NIR, being able to predict the percent grass in either a dry hay, a fresh grass, or a um, fermented silage sample. Um, and so some of the things that that is useful for um, to help you identify your optimum harvest date a little better, rank your fields based on percent alfalfa, decide when to start treating a, a stand that you're, you've been treating in the past for fertility-wise and as an alfalfa stand as more of a grass stand, fine-tune those potassium and uh, lime recommendations for a field, assess whether or not there's a problem from insect or disease management, uh, damage in the field, um, some nutrient recommendations and software, nutrient recommendation software actually wants to have a percent alfalfa number put into it to make a potassium or a lime recommendation. And it's also required in some forage quality software such as Milk 2000 if you're using the alfalfa grass version. Uh, can be used with some ration balancing programs and lets you have a quality control to check how representative the forage sample is. Um, highly variable alfalfa percent over time can indicate some uh, unrepresentative samples. And that's all I've got, Marianne. Okay, thanks so much, Sally. Um, that was a great and quick presentation. Um, our next present presenter will be Matt Michonsky. He's doing a last-minute pinch hit for Ralph Ward, who had a unavoidable conflict. So Matt got drawn in at the last minute last week.
but I understand he'll do a fantastic job from all I've heard. Matt is a Connecticut-born Yankee who received his bachelor's in animal and food science from Delaware Valley College and his master's in animal nutrition from the Ohio State University. Matt has worked in the dairy industry for over 20 years. He started his career as a research coordinator, then spent a number of years in the feed industry as an on-farm dairy nutritionist and in a tech support role in New York and Pennsylvania. Matt is the manager of technical services at CVAS, where much of his focus and passion is directing large projects from industry and academia to ensure they have the best information possible with an emphasis on characterizing protein, starch, and NDF. So at this point, I will give Matt the presentation role. Well, thanks very much, Marianne. Uh, hopefully everyone can hear me. So my name is Matt Mashansky with Cumberland Valley Analytical, and what we're going to talk about uh, this afternoon are two things, um, two different topics. The first one will be fatty acid valuation by NIR, and then the second part of the talk will be on intestinal protein digestibility assay. So first, need to consider why fatty acids are important. Um, Crude fat has been the traditional method for evaluating fat and feed stuff. We often call it ether extract because we use ether to extract it. Ether extract is not a uniform feed ingredient. There's very little difference um, between crude fat and fatty acids, but there are some products that this would be a concern. So why consider fatty acids? Um, for fermented feeds and some byproducts, there may be significant differences between crude fat and total fatty acids. Uh, this is a, a graph uh, chart showing the total fatty acids as a percent of fat or ether extract in hay crop silage. Um, this is based on 11,000 samples. So on average, 51.4% of the of the fat are fatty acids. So that's a pretty significant um, amount that we're calling energy or fat that really is not a fatty acid and may or may not be available to the cow for energy. So fatty acids are determined, generally involve an extraction of the fat followed by analysis by gas chromatography. This can be quite expensive and time consuming. Um, NIR is an applicable technology for routine analysis of total fatty acids and even individual fatty acids. Successful NIR calibrations are based on the following characteristics. Organic bonding and chemical uniformity, the range of the nutrients being analyzed, and the precision of the analysis being performed by the chemistry. Acid evaluation of corn silage, corn grain, and TMR by NIR often meet that criteria, generating quality NIR calibrations. They are well-defined organic compounds. There's obviously a very significant range in composition, and the chemistry evaluation by gas chromatography provides that significant precision that's often needed to get a good NIR calibration. So at Cumberland Valley, we've made the commitment to try to characterize these and the oleic, the linoleic, and the linolenic. So what we did is we looked at each individual fatty acid, and then we also combined those and then tried to do some predictions based on those wet chemistry values. So our standard error was actually fairly reasonable on these uh, with a, a very good R squared. And obviously, as the number is bigger, um, the R squared typically gets um, a little bit more forgiving. 
um, with that C18-3 in corn silage is very low in corn silage. So even with that, we're still getting a fairly good R squared, uh, even though it's a fairly small part of the of the of the composition of the sample. And then rural full, so that's kind of a the, the new term that that's being used right now to help, uh, particularly looking at um, the effects of the fatty acids on biohydrogenation in the in the rumen to try to determine if there's some milk suppression going on. So that's what we were looking at. So we could look at individual fatty acids, particularly the significant part of the diet, but probably more importantly, more of a practical level, maybe looking at some specifics, either the, the rufules or the total fatty acids in that ingredient or diet. So this graph is showing the distribution of total fatty acids in corn silage. Uh, this is based on about 2,500 samples. So on average, we're looking around 2.4% of the dry matter are, are coming fatty acids from corn silage, and a fairly significant range. You know, most of these samples are falling between that 2.3 and 2.9 range, but we do have some samples that are falling off in the tail, uh, but you can kind of tell where, where these are falling in, in this type of feed. And then if you're looking at your rufles, again, that's your C18s. Um, this is also based on the same data set so these are averaging around 1.8, um, a similar looking distribution um, with that on the rufles. We also looked at corn grain, um, looking at the distribution around 3.7 is on average, and, and not as probably wide as a distribution. You're seeing some more and more in the center of the graph there. And this would be the rufles on that same grain material. So often people want to know what's in the whole TMR um, as, as, a, as a means of monitoring their diets. Um, as you can tell, there's a lot more distribution here, um, quite a wider range standard deviation. So we're averaging around 3.8 on, on total fatty acids. Um, again, this is each TMR is quite a bit different, um, and then and this graph is really showing that. And this is actually the rufles in, the, in those same TMRs, um, averaging 2.65. And actually, these are really coming together a little bit closer. You're not quite seeing quite the range of, of, of rufles as you did on the, on the fatty acids. So switching gears here a little bit, um, we've embraced the um, Ross Van Amberg procedure of the in vitro nitrogen digestibility assay. Uh, we put a real focus here in the last year or so to try to get this assay up and working and uh, see some real potential with this. Um, with, with permission from uh, Dr. Van Amberg, I kind of asked him, we kind of have to have a name for this. Um, so we came up with our own name here of the multi-step protein evaluation, or MSPE for short. Um, this assay has been used by multiple labs um, for the last several years. It does seem to provide a tool for evaluating, uh, evaluating protein sources and particularly byproduct materials, allowing for characterization of indigestible nitrogen. That's something that's really been locking in the industry. And I think um, from a practical standpoint, this seems to help at least get us a step forward looking at that characterization. Properly, really need to know what that intestinal digestibility is. Um, and right now, we're using a static library in um, the CNCPS. Um, at least the older one before the 6.5. So most models, both the NRC, CNCPS, or, or other models based on that technology um, have that static value for intestinal digestibility. We know that that's not true, and we know from particularly in monogastric species, we really rely on that 
and then intestinal digestibility to, to balance proteins and amino acids. So we're we're trying to find um, a source of a test that help us identify that better. And I should mention too, much of these slides have been courtesy of Dr. Van Amberg, and we certainly appreciate his assistance with this talk. So traditionally, unavailable nitrogen was a calculation within CDC fees by this fairly long um, involved calculation. Uh, essentially based on the differences between NDF-CP or NDIN and ADIN. Um, then you have your KD rate for that digestion. You need to know what your passage rate is. And then they're putting a fixed constant on that. So again, this is all based on fiber fractions of protein. Um, so obviously one of the challenges, if, if you have a protein that is a considered a, um, a protein source that's not plant-based, um, you're not going to have ADF and NDF to find that ADF and NDF-CP. Us labs can generate a number for you, but it really isn't what that is. Um, it's usually whatever's stuck left in the filter after we're done with the procedure. So what's nice about this new procedure coming on is instead of estimating, particularly on these products like blood products, animal products in general, um, we can get a better characterization of what that digestibility might be. So intestinal digestibility, the potentially rumen undegradable protein, you have your A fractions, which is your NPNs, and then you have your B fractions, is really what is that indigestible fraction? You really need to know that to get your pool size figured out, and this is what this test really was originally designed to do. So the purpose of this updated uh, in vitro test was a modification of existing methods to better estimate unavailable fraction. Um, one thing's now that's, that's helped with this assays, we're using flasks instead of bags. The traditional method was using situ bags, uh, which is a Dacron material, which had a 50 micron pore size. So you often lose the material, particularly on these blood meals. You can just shake the bag and you lose, you know, 20 to 30% before you even got started. Now we're using a, a physiological enzyme mix, which does certainly help reduce variation in that proteolytic activity. And now we're filtering with a one and a half micron filter as opposed to that larger bag size. We're catching more of those materials and probably getting a more, a better characterization of what may be going on in that in those couple different steps. But with any method, there's always that one or two products that never fits. And um, there are some products that the filtration does not work well and is not, may not be appropriate. And that's especially true if you have a nitrogen source that's very soluble or significantly micronized. So it actually may pass through that filter um, and really get counted as degradable protein where maybe it wasn't, it just happened to go through the filter. So it often can lead to a lower, a perception of lower rumen undergradable protein. So in, in order to overcome those limitations, there's always something that um, always has to be a modification of any procedure. Debbie Ross and Mike Van Amberg came up with the idea of using the freeze drying to recover the materials for that assay. And it's really critical for that room RUP definition because just because it goes through the filter doesn't mean it was necessarily available to those rumen bugs. So the type of products, uh, particularly certain types of blood meals, and I'll show you some slides, and not necessarily all blood meals, um, but that really is, this is a method that should be investigated when you're deciding to evaluate protein sources. And it's also important to characterize those feed materials so the lab really knows what's the right procedure to do. Um, so there's a couple of reasons why you would not want to do freeze drying. 
there's always two most important things whenever doing anything with dairy cows and rations. It's, it's cost and time involved to get that. So this is a picture of a, um, this was a blood meal that we filtered through a normal soluble protein uh, filtration method and collected the uh, the liquid. As you can see, there's quite a bit there. Um, some of these blood products are very low soluble, like 2 or 3%, and some of these could be like 60% soluble. So there's a wide variety of solubility out there. And if that stuff's going through the filter like that, um, we may not be counting that um, as degradable or counting as degradable when it's really not. So we did a comparison looking at the freeze-dry method versus the traditional filter method on three different blood sources. These are blinds that actually came to us. We didn't know what they were when they came. Um, so all similar of, of crude protein levels. Um, as you can see, we talked about that solubility. This one was almost 50% soluble. The other two were only around 2%. When we did the filtration method, uh, the RUP step, that very soluble protein only showed a 28% RUP value. Um, the blood meals, twos were 96 and 94. But then when we freeze-dried it, so when we take that, we're freeze freezing everything. Uh, we're taking that flask, we're freezing the material, sticking that whole thing in the freeze-dryer and drying it down in the freeze-dryer. So um, you're capturing all the particles that are still there. Um, you know, an argument against that may be, hey, you're, you're collecting a bunch of soluble things, uh, ammonias that really is not degraded. So that everything is a trade-off. Um, the blanks are a little bit different. You're dealing with a larger amount of material. So there's there, there's some challenges with that too, but it does certainly help characterize better some of these products that, you know, I say it's obviously radically different between a 28 and a 74. Um, and then if you look at your total tract undigestible crude protein as a percent of crude protein, really a significant difference on these products as well. That first blood meal, is, it seems to be very um, degraded where the other two were not as much. So obviously why not always do freeze drying? Um, the basic freeze drying units cost between $25,000 and $30,000. You can't get a lot of samples in there for that. Um, and obviously the operating cost of these type of, of equipment and the drying time is significantly longer. So there's there's going to be a delay in the process. So that's the freeze dryer that we bought to to work on this. And whenever you buy something, you think it's going to be big enough. But once you get started, you always realize you should have bought something. So this slide just goes through what the procedure is that we're looking for, um, how the samples work. So basically, we, we take that sample. We're fermenting that in a flask system um, with room and buffer and room and fluid. We're doing that for the 16-hour time point. Um, once we're taking it off, we actually to the flask, we pull those off to the side and do an REP estimation. The, the other ones we continue on, we acidify that with HCl. And then we're adding the pepsin step for about an hour. And then we're neutralizing that with sodium hydroxide. And then we're adding an enzyme cocktail that was developed by Debbie Ross, um, which should be similar to what's going on in that small intestine. We put that into a shaking water bath for about 24 hours. Um, and then either we're filtering it, or, and then we'll go on to the nitrogen determination. Um, Debbie's lab uses a Keldol. We're actually using a Leco. Um, we actually got a actually bought a true spec to capture all the material. That now we can burn the whole material up and really help reduce the issue of subsampling, particularly in the freeze dry step. That stuff is just completely different cat to work with and it's really nice to be able to burn that whole sample up and have that confidence that you got everything that was in that flask. 
So this is a point that Mike really has been stressing in his talks and wanted us to also stress is that everyone wants to talk about RUP um, and because that does really how we judge products. Um, but his point is that this was never designed to provide a robust RUP value. Um, he says we don't provide a single time point estimate of RUP because no one would believe the UN number unless we provided an RUP. So more robust RUP determination requires multiple time points is really not part of this essay. This is something that um, Ross from 2013 put together. Um, this is a comparison with ADIN and the Ross in vitro indigestible nitrogen. What's interesting about this is that, again, we're talking about blood meal. There is no fiber in that, so there really should no be bound protein to that fiber fraction. Um, you could really miss a bad blood product if you were relying on that ADIN value to determine your um, unavailable nitrogen. So in that second heat damage one, 93% of that protein just passed right out to the back end and was not of any value to that animal. But even on the soybean extracted versus heat treated, there are some differences that may be a little bit more sensitive with this assay than what the ADIN value would show, even though you know, that does have fiber in it and maybe a fairly good indicator, but certainly better than what blood was. These are just some examples and certainly not exhaustive lists. Um, I just pulled a couple samples out just to know what kind of differences that you can maybe expect to see in this assay. Um, it's interesting on these two blood products, they both have very similar RUP values, but totally different total tract digestibilities. And that's what um, really caught my eye with this procedure to be able to pick up those differences. But even in products like canola, um, there are some differences in total tract digestibility, not that significant, but there could be some differences there. I thought that distillers was interesting. There's always this perception that lower RUP must mean it's more available. And that's not always the case. In this case, we had a low a distillers that was 53% RUP, but 16% of that was unavailable to the to the enzymes. Where we had one was 81% bypass, but had very good. And those last four here, we're looking at untreated soybean meal. People typically don't send that product in a lot, but I think as, as a good comparison. Um, soybean meal is, is, at least on this method, is a very digestible product. You know, in this case, 96% of that was digested. And as your heat treatment went up, you do start seeing a decrease in that total tract. Um, it's not a guarantee if you have a higher RUP, it's going to be lower digestibility, but there, there tends to be a trend to affect that to a certain extent. So as Mike says, does the cow really care? So they did a test. They did an experiment, I should say, not a test, but an experiment to determine what effect does indigestible uh, protein have on a ration. And basically looking at to looking at UN value and the CNCPS and new 6.5 biology, can they pick up these on these protein products? Does that make a difference for cow performance? And I don't want to spend a lot of time setting it up, but basically there was 128 cows in this. Um, they were distributed by body weight and days in milk. They had eight pens of 16 cows, and the pens were stratified to four levels of milk production in each stratum, randomly allocated to treatments. Random allocation of pens to treatments. These diets were designed to be isoenergetic and isonitrogenous. And the treatments to difference were created by using two different blood meals. So one blood meal was 9% unavailable nitrogen, and the other one was 34%. And the calculated difference in N nitrogen digestibility between the two treatments was 38 grams of nitrogen. And the cattle were consuming approximately 670 grams of nitrogen, so about 5.8% of the intake.
Um, the intake was shown to be fairly level between the two uh, products. So what they were consuming didn't seem to affect any dry matter intake. Um, but, but basically going in, they were getting the same amount of nitrogen going in. What's interesting about this is what's coming out or the energy corrected milk yield. There was a significant difference between that low, uh, low unavailable nitrogen and that high unavailable nitrogen. Um, as you can see at the beginning of the test, they were right very close together. And as the test proceeded, they certainly stayed apart and were consistently different throughout the whole nine weeks of this experiment. So in summary, the total fatty acids we found to be a significant nutrient entity that um, better than crude fat to help uh, characterize these feeds. And NIR is able to predict total fatty acids and unsaturated fatty acids with significant accuracy and precision. The intestinal digestible assay of Ross and Van Amberg is a significant improvement in the laboratory approach to evaluate indigestible fractions and feed materials. The use of feed freeze-drying in place of filtration is necessary um, for proper characterization of certain types of feed products, particularly if you know you have a high soluble fraction or maybe some type of micronized source of nitrogen. And again, trying to stress that it, even though we do provide that RUP and everyone asked for it, um, it was not the original purpose of this assay. The original purpose of the assay was to provide an indigestible nitrogen source to better replace uh, the ADIN that is currently used for the indigestible nitrogen. So I appreciate your attention and thanks again. Okay, thank you, Matt. Okay. Our next, next month's speaker will be Dr. Jim Drakeley. He's PhD and professor at the University of Illinois. He will speak on feeding calves, weaning, and early post-weaning strategies. The date will be the 13th of April, 2016. And remember, for those of you listening in the US, we will be moving to daylight savings time. So our presentation time will move to 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Dr. Jim Drakeley is Professor of Animal Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His research program has focused on nutrition and metabolism of dairy cows during the transition from pregnancy to lactation, fat utilization and metabolism, and aspects of calf nutrition and management. Dr. Drakeley has published extensively and has supervised 40 grad students to master's or PhD degrees has received numerous professional awards and is widely sought by the industry for speaking and consulting services. So we're certainly lucky to get him. He is currently serving on the National Research Council Committee to prepare the eighth edition of the Nutrient Requirements of Dairy Cattle. Before we go to questions, I want to thank the people who made this possible. Tom Taluki, AMTS USA and Global. And I just want to say Tom has been listening on his phone and he wants to thank our three panelists because they did a fantastic job. Um, this was certainly, I, next, next month's presentation with just one person will be a lot easier. Um, Marcelo Hens Ramos at 3R Lab in Brazil and Paula Torillo in Argentina. We want to thank our translators in each location. Our generous sponsors make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsor, Ajinomoto Heartland, Superior Nutrition Through Amino Acids. Our silver sponsors are Arm & Hammer, Animal Nutrition, Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA, DHA Omega-3s, and Prequil with Omega-6s. 
bronze sponsors are Jeffo, Life Made Easier, Dairy One Forage Labs, Dairyland Laboratories, and QLF. I will now open up the floor for questions. Because we sometimes have trouble with audio for questions, I will read your question in the question and answer place. Remember to raise your hand or just type your question in the Q&A tab. Paula will ask questions for the Spanish language audience and Marcelo will ask questions for the Brazilian listeners. Um, and also, if you have a specific person of our three panelists that you want to direct the question to, please do let me know. I want to give Paula and Marcelo an opportunity to thank our panelists. Can you hear yes, I, I want to thank everybody there. We had great presentations. Hello. Excellent. I think the three labs did a great job showing the shredders, the difference and uh, difference in lignin and also the NIR the capabilities. I, I think people that are around me here, we have a technical issue in Brazil, but we have some questions here for you guys. Um, Marcelo, I'm going to let you lead off with some questions. Uh, I think one of the Two or three questions I have here go for Sally. I think they did a great job. Um, the first one I think is very interesting that she mentioned uh, fiber. She measured fiber on manure or fecal fiber. And uh, I know uh, the, the labs are doing fecal starch in relating that to starch digestibility. And also want to ask uh, if the labs now are able to measure fiber in the manure and relate that to fiber digestibility because that would be very, very nice if, if, we, if that's possible. That's a question. Okay. Yes. Uh, so we uh, did that on just those samples. That's not something that we're doing, offering as a service. Um, Paul's here. Okay. Answer for him on whether or not we'd be able to do that on a high volume of samples or what. We don't have any plans right now to, to work towards offering that as a service, but if there's enough interest out there, I would think it's something we'd be able to do um, along with. Okay, but, my, but the question was more on the, on the link between uh, fiber and fecal on the manure and fiber digestibility. Do you guys see any relationship with that, like it's a clear relationship with starch and starch digestibility on the fecal, fecal starch? I don't know. Um, we, it's hard for us as a lab to take that, take the data we get for a forage sample or a TMR and relate it to a fecal sample number unless we're being told that those two numbers are from the same place. So I would hesitate to, we don't really have many fecal NDF numbers to look at overall and compare to our fiber numbers, but without being told from the, whoever's sending us the samples that those two samples are from the same animal, from the same diet, um, we're really not able to make that connection in the lab. Thank you. I can jump in from Cumberland Valley, this is Matt. So we actually did develop uh, NIR equations for both TMRs and fecals. Uh, we actually are offering, we, we call it parent nutrient digestibility, uh, where if we receive in a pair of, now this is only for U.S. clients now, internationally, if we have a manure permit, which we can talk about, um, that, that may be a limitation, but if we long have a manure permit, we can certainly receive them from other countries. 
Um, so we actually do, we develop NIR equations for fiber and starch and protein for manure. And if we can pair, we basically would pair up a TMR with the fecal and then give a parent nutrient digestibilities. And this is based on work from Randy Shaver's lab. Um, and we're using that NDF 240 that we talked, that was discussed about the low lignin. Uh, we've really embraced that. And now we have the equations for manure as well. And then we can use that as a marker and then determine digestibility of protein. This is a parent nutrient digestibility of, of protein, NDF, and starch. So we actually, that's been a fairly popular thing that we've been doing here for probably the last, maybe close to two years now. Thank you. Okay, thanks. I'm going to go ahead and have Paula ask some questions that she had. I have some questions in my window, and I'll let Paula go first, and then we'll ask the questions that I have. So, Paula, go ahead. I have a question for Matt. Hi, Matt. Hi. Excellent presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, do you have information of the seasonal evolution of fresh pastures regarding to unsaturated fatty acids? This is a question from Eduardo Lopez. We, we are working on fatty acids and pastures. I don't know if we have the NIR equation worked up on that yet, um, but that's no, one of the things that we're looking at. My first question is from Sam. He says, this, is, this question is for Dave. Any UNDF 240 data on what low lignin on that low lignin alfalfa? Uh, there is some. Um, we uh, I was you know when I picked this topic, I was hoping to be able to present some of that data, and um, but because it was confidential in nature, I didn't get the the clearing to do that. Um, but yes, there is some data on the UNDF digestibility on the the lignin, the, the reduced lignin. Uh, we actually ran several time points uh, trying to characterize the fast and slow pools, and um, you know it does seem to be able to pick that up. Um, I don't have any concrete data, but I think that'll be available uh, hopefully during this. Okay, my next question is from John, and this is for Sally. Is anyone looking at comparing equal rates between processors? So I think he's saying kernel processing score. The studies that are currently published, I don't know. Uh, I haven't had a chance to see if uh, Larry has published his uh, kernel processing scores. They were different in the UW studies. They were different in our study. We've been talking with some people recently about trying to design some projects where we're really trying to equal hit equal kernel processing scores for the corn silage in the project. Um, you know, the hard part about that is in discussions about kernel processing score recently, we've also been getting into kernel processing score at harvest versus kernel processing score at feed out and where, which time point um, to look at and changes between the two time points. So we have been having quite a lot of discussion recently with people about expanding some of these projects to address some of those types of questions in the next uh, year or so. Okay, thanks. Um, I do have a comment from Tom on the fatty acids on pasture, he said sample handling is critical as profile changes rapidly. Basically, you have to freeze immediately at collection. So that's just, just something to throw out there. Ed, does anybody from the labs want to comment on that or chime in? Yeah, we learned that the hard way. 
<laughs> okay. Um, while I have my mic open, I have a question for Matt. Um, how many samples have you done with the MSPE, and is there an NIR coming? Uh, the famous NIR question. We are going to be looking at that. We probably have between around 700 samples right now, I think, um, and growing. That's probably pretty close. I think it is a number that may work with NIR. We have not looked at that yet. It's on our list. Um, but at this point, we have not developed. Okay. That's all the questions I have right now in my window. I'm going to see if Marcelo. Marcelo, do you have any? Okay, question go ahead. here is, uh, since the Sally study on uh, Stradlish had a greater KPS, shouldn't she expect a lower thicker starch and also greater starch distribution? Yes. We would have expected that, but that's not what we saw. So we were still puzzled a little bit by what's going on there. Um, we did see pretty much equal fecal starch concentrations in both diets, even with that higher kernel processing score. Really, the only difference we saw with those cows was that difference in milk uh, production, which um, gets me thinking a little bit about our estimations of the potential of milk production from the cows. Um, are we still limiting what those cows, even on that shredlage diet, are able to do genetically since they're still getting all the starch that they can. Okay, Marcelo, did you have any more questions? I Yes, one for Matt. I think he did an excellent job on uh, either extract and fat acid. I think it's going that way on that uh, polyunsaturated fat acid. The question is, what is the R-square for either extract and uh, total fat acid on the TMR? The total diet. I'm going to get that for you. I'm not quite sure what the, the ether extract is on that set. I'd have to pull it out. Is that good? It should be fairly good. Um, but again, I don't have that, so I don't want to say for sure. Um, Ralph actually did that data extraction work on, so I'm I'm not as familiar with that data set. So instead of me giving the wrong number, I can probably get back to you on that. Okay. Thank you, Marcelo. I have a question for Sally. Can you clarify in the Allen Waite study, were there multiple corn hybrids in the bunk or only one? And is there anything you can offer as far as describing the corn hybrids? About the most I can offer for uh, explaining the corn hybrids is neither of them were BMRs. They were both a conventional hybrid. Um, and there probably was a mix of hybrids. They were all pioneer conventional, uh, but they're... You know, we were working at two pretty massive bunks for both of those, so it was just what the farm harvested. The challenge with that study is that we uh, were approached after they harvested and put everything in the bunk to do the project, and so we were just working with what the farm had available and what the farm was going to use to make a decision um, on their corn silage process. Okay. Thank you, and I just want to clarify that question was from Paul, Sarah. Uh, Marion, there was one question about how well the lignin correlates to the 240. Okay, I think I must have missed that. Sorry about that. Okay. No, I'm sorry. It's a, um, to answer that question, in our data sets, uh, the lignin content actually correlates quite well with the undigestible NDF at 240 hours. Uh, if you take a look at a, a specifically in corn silage where it's a pure grass, that correlation is very strong, anywhere from 0.6, maybe up to 0.8. When we look at our hay crop data sets where you have a mixture of grasses and legumes in the same data sets, 
Um, that correlation isn't quite as strong, uh, but still there is a correlation there anywhere from 0.4. Uh, if you went into some pure alfalfa data sets where the grass was limited, the correlation would be up to like 0.7 between those numbers. So there is a high correlation um, in our data sets for that. Okay, thanks, Dave. One more here on the lignin side. Uh, it looks like uh, if you have the BMR corn or sorghum, uh, you have, might have a better quality and sometimes better increasing milk production, but you might have lower uh, dry matter production. It looks like in the alfalfa that doesn't happen. Uh, could the speaker comment a little bit on the issues on uh, handling alfalfa and how the dairy farms are seeing that because it looks like it's a new the new seed that's coming out maybe this year or a year ago. I wish I could be of more help. Um, you know, the, the varieties that are out are in limited production, uh, especially of the biotechnical uh, synthesized lignin varieties. They had limited production last year. The few samples that we've been getting in, uh, the farms only had like not even enough to fill a bag, so they really weren't able to feed it to see how well it was going to feed. Uh, so, like a lot of things, uh, just not enough data to really give you a solid comment on that. My apologies. Okay. Well, I think it's, um, we don't have any more questions. I certainly want to thank our speakers. Tom sends his thanks for um, participating in this, this webinar. It was certainly challenging for us to do three at a time. I'm going to give Paula and Marcelo both an, both an opportunity to thank and sign up. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Marian and all the team there, uh, all the speakers. It was, uh, they did a great job today. I'd like to thank you all for coming and joining us and sharing really good uh, new and uh, important data for us to share now in Brazil and Argentina and our U.S. That data is going to be sharing to a lot of professors and students and technicians. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Marcelo and Paula, and thank you, Matt, Dave, and Sally. It was certainly fun to do this with everybody, and with that, I think that we will sign off on this webinar, and I will get everybody the link of the recorded version when it's ready for production. Thanks very much, and have a good, good night if it's night where you are. Thanks.